0: The best things in life for free. If you subscribe to The Spectator, you'll get a whole month for free. And after that, you'll only pay a pound for full access to our website and to our app. And if you want to pay two pounds, you'll get our magazine too. To claim this offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free.
1: Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the spectators' food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts and today we're delighted to be joined by Ewan Venters, the former chief executive of Fortnum & Mason and now the CEO of ArtFam and Hauser & Worth. Ewan is launching ArtFam's first London venture combining food, drink and art and very shortly it will be the revival of the historic Mayfair landmark, the Audley. Ewan, welcome to Table Talk. Hello. So, Jürgen, we'll start where we always do at the very beginning and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food?
0: I think I have two clear memories, actually. You know, I was born in Scotland, as you know. I, I grew up a lot of time with my grandmother in a fishing village called Pittenweem on the east nook, the east coast of Fife. And there were sort of two very strong evocative memories of food. And one was going down to the harbour and seeing the boats coming in. And the fishermen sort of throwing my brother and I a few uh, fish for us to take back up to my grandmother's kitchen, and I seem to remember you know a lot of flatfish, you know lemon lemon sole being carried up, and and watching my grandmother fillet fish and and cook delicious things with it. Uh, that was one strong memory, and then the other was making marmalade. You know the Scots are are very famous for their not for their oranges but for marmalade making several mm. oranges and i just i can tell you now i can smell it i can see her i can see the stove the pot and i've got the smell in my nostrils now it's, it's amazing just how you know 45 years from when i was first watching her make marmalade it, it, it's as strong today as it was then
1: and is that something you've inherited do you make your own marmalade now
0: <laughs> no, no, not so much. I mean, lots of family and friends, funny enough, do make, I mean, I live in London, mostly. And um, even my London neighbours make marmalade, you know, so um, uh, no, I don't need to make marmalade so much myself. But, um, but I do love baking, and I do love cooking. So, you know, that's mm. certainly um, stuck with me all my years. Great. Uh, I don't know how good I am, but but I love it.
1: And was that something that she involve you in or were you a mere spectator? What, what was your role in your grandmother's kitchen?
0: Oh, I think there was no chance to be a spectator. I mean, we were, we, my brother and I were always, you know, involved in some capacity, you know, whether it was washing pots or cleaning up or or actually helping her. So no, it, there was no time for being a spectator. It was very much hands-on, even at the sort of tender age of, you know, five, six, seven. But we were keen, you know, we were keen as mustard. And in fact, we would sometimes come up from the, the harbour with you know, hands full of fish, and and then head back down again, and see if we could chance luck the second time. And uh, <laughs> so I think sometimes I think we we really were feeding you know <laughs> quite a lot of people with uh, the quantities of fish that would come. But but great you know great memories, great really fond childhood memories of food in that context.
1: And the meal times that you had together as a family were they important were they were they rushed what what were they like what was it like sitting down together as a family
0: yeah i think i always we were brought up in a you know where you know eating we, we called it tea in scotland you know it was like tea time so you would have your tea at five thirty or 6 o'clock or something and yeah every conceivable opportunity we would all absolutely all eat together I'm sure it wasn't some idyllic picture postcard of you know grand dinners that lasted hours. I'm sure it was a bit faster than that in reality. But but no, people weren't in a rush. I mean, you know, if the weather was great, I suppose we were all dead keen to get out and go walking and and on the beach and so on. But but it was it was a happy time. I have strong leisurely breakfast memories. You know, Sunday going to church on a Sunday, and you know coming back. I was brought up as a Catholic and my mother was Catholic and we'd go to church and then come back. And my father wasn't um, particularly religious at all. So he would have the duty of making sure that there was a fantastic breakfast ready for when we would return. And that was always a great occasion, you know, for an hour, two hours where we would all sit and chat. and and feast and read the newspapers and, you know, talk about what was going on in everybody's life. And so Sunday lunches, Sunday sort of late breakfast, early lunch was a kind of a strong childhood memory.
1: And what about school food? Were they happy memories? Yeah, I don't see, I,
0: uh, yes, I think they were fine. I don't, I don't particularly, I mean, look, I've been an entrepreneur all my life and when from the age of about seven or eight, I was, you know, running the school tuck shop, you know, the, the illegal tuck shop in the school ground so I don't think I probably stood around for lunch much because I was always there was always something on my mind about how I could sell some stuff and and sell chocolate bars etc etc so no but actually I think school food you know I was part of a generation that we did get free school milk and we had proper dinner ladies who actually could cook <laughs> and so I, I have pretty good memories of school food being shepherd's pie yeah it'd been great you know things like that that were were genuinely homemade so and i get quite cross and quite angry now when i see the the challenges of food in institutions generally but you know in in state-run schools where you go you know there's no need for it to be that bad you know it can be better you know and i i always admire people like henry dimbleby and you know others who have shown jamie obviously very famously you know shown that there are ways of putting skills back into kitchens and getting raw ingredients into kitchens and And actually providing not just better food, but actually food that's often produced at far less cost than buying in fully processed sugar and salt laden processed foods.
1: And speaking of your early entrepreneurship, um, am I right thinking you made your own tablet?
0: Well, I wonder, I wonder, Olivia, you're, you're well researched. I mean, absolutely. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this story has <laughs> never,
0: never been told before. Yeah, you bet. I mean, I started a little bakery business when I was 11, uh, delivering bread rolls to the local neighborhood. And they were, largely speaking, the, the, that those bread rolls and other bakery goods I was buying in from a local baker. You know, I had a contract with them and they would deliver to my parents' house, and then I would do the onwards distribution of said rolls to Scottish rolls. That's a proper mm. Scottish word. Like for, for other audiences that don't uh, that don't reside in Scotland, you know, morning baps, <laughs> morning roll, you know, morning yeah, buns. I mean, different different parts of the United Kingdom call call them different things. But uh, yeah, so I did that, and then I thought, oh, tablet. I, I again, a tablet was something that I think my mother made more than my grandmother, and I took to making scottish tablet which as you well know is a bit like fudge but a firmer texture a bit more brittle brittle, but not too brittle you know a bit more brittle and i would make i think probably the best tablet in fife without question and it would (laughs) sell ever so well and i managed to perfect the art of having three pots on the cooker top at the same time but setting them 15 minutes apart so that at every stage of the process I could up my production uh, but never burn the tablet or overcook the tablet. And- I mean, that is
1: sincerely very impressive. Anyone who's who's made fudge knows how <laughs> fiercely it spits and boils. And oh, how yes. It boils.
0: And, and then how you beat it. I was taught that one of the best ways is to, of course, cool the tablet mixture down fast. So I mm-hmm. learned that you had to fill a basin of cold water, add ice cubes to make it really cold, so that when you took it off the stove and you you put the pan into the cold water and beat it, and that was the way of, if you like, speeding up production, but also protecting mm-hmm. and getting that the, the fudge not to, or the tablet, not to be too much like fudge, and be, not to be too much like toffee, but to be tablet. Mm-hmm. And I'm very proud because, All these years later, when I was running Fortnum's, one of my great long-term mates, Tom Parker Bowles, uh, wrote the very first Fortnum's cookbook. Mm -hmm. And I was invited to contribute to the the book with my own recipe. And I put in Ewan's tablet. And so Ewan's tablet lives on as a formal recipe in the Fortnum's cookbook. And then the buyers thought it was so good that the buying department have converted it into a factory-made product. And so if you go into Fortnums today, you'll actually see a box of Ewan's tablet and it's got my legacy my signature on it. So perhaps that will sit on the well, hopefully not sit on the shelves, but hopefully sell from the shelves.
1: Buy off the shelves.
0: For many, many decades to come. Well, it's very interesting because I travel through Heathrow an awful lot in my job now. And at the Fortnum shop there, I often go in to buy a box of the tablet to take with me as a gift to to whoever I'm going to see in the world. And um they're forever running out. So the the staff say that um Scottish tablets are big sellers so Ewan's tablet is out there in the world in, uh...
1: I was going to say that's so handy if you're going through Heathrow and can just pick up a personalised gift but if it's not reliably there if it's too popular <laughs>
0: <laughs> absolutely they, they, yeah, yeah Fortnum's management note to action up the production <laughs>
1: Please check your stock levels on tablet. So how did you end up in London? Where did you go straight from Fife to London?
0: No, I did because my folks, you know, would bring my brother and I to London every year, once twice a year to the theatre, to galleries, to museums, to the great shops of of London from a very young age. So mm-hmm. I was incredibly at ease with London. You know, I felt that London was a second home, if you like. My father had sailed in and out of the East end of London when he was in the Merchant Navy. My mother was in the medical service and she worked in a great Omen street hospital uh, amongst others. So they loved London. They, you know, London was a big passion for them. So of course, when it came to doing my Scottish hires, which are a bit like A-levels, um, Mm -hmm. you know, there was a decision to be made, you know, did I go on to uh, college or university in Scotland, or did I. Get into the workplace, and my mother read a whole article about the management training program at Sainsbury's, at the the supermarket Sainsbury's. Which I I make that distinction because there was no Sainsbury's in Scotland. You know, this was an English company uh, that was only south of the border, had never made it to to Scotland. So, in itself, that was all kind of exciting and quite exotic in a way. This idea of this this amazing. Supermarkets. And of course, back in, you know, we're talking about the late 80s at this point, you know, Sainsbury were the undisputed sort of number one. They were the champions of the supermarket sector and, and they had some of the best produce and the best suppliers and some of the best ingredients. And so I applied to Harriet Watt the University at the same time as applying to Sainsbury's and it just caught my imagination. And I realized mm. that they were an extraordinary professional organization with a super structured training program. And they offered me a job in London, and I thought, I'm off. And so 16, just turning 17, with four or five hires to my name, I headed to London to join August the 21st, I think it was. August 21st, uh, 1989, is when I headed and arrived in London. and have just of, passed
1: the anniversary of it.
0: I've, yeah, sort of, yeah, exactly. And then sort mm-hmm. of and never left since, you know, not really. I mean, I had a little bit of time mm-hmm. in Yorkshire for a year or two, but but broadly speaking, I have lived in London ever since.
1: And as you say, you've visited a lot, but what what was it like arriving? I mean, 16 or 17 is is young to kind of really fly the nest Mm. and move to a completely different Mm. city. What was it like arriving in London at that point for you?
0: Well, you know, you you started this interview talking about, you know, early food memories, and I sort of talked Mm. about smell. So smell, arriving on the train into King's Cross, the smell of diesel. You know there weren't many electric trains around at that point you know and uh, nor were there coal trains <laughs> steam trains so it was diesel and so i remember that mugginess that warm london was warm london summers always seemed to be hotter than perhaps they appear to be today but i wonder if that's just getting older that, that these memories change but 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 it, it was a muggy hot it was a week or two before i officially started I had a lot of cousins, a lot of my cousins lived in London. So th- the transition was not as tough because I was coming to a city that I knew a bit about. I was familiar with the transport. I had a number of cousins who had homes in London. So I headed actually to Dulwich initially to stay with my, my actually my eldest cousin, who was a diplomat in the foreign office. And, and I um, resided with her for some time before I ended up in my own accommodation once I settled so it it was tough and I think gosh 16 turning 17 so young but there was a good network and there was a family network Mm. which was
1: which made it easier and you you went from Sainsbury's to Selfridges presumably at that point you had made the decision that this kind of buying career was for you that you'd found your your metier so to speak well there was
0: actually a step in between so Sainsbury's uh yeah there was there was Sainsbury's um largely speaking, for, for about nine years of my, my career, which incidentally included an extraordinary period as the citrus buyer being responsible for incredible. buying...
1: Marmalade. You
0: know, well, they're back to the marmalade. Yeah, there we go. I was destined to to be... And, you know, that was incredible, too, to be responsible for all the clementines and the satsumas and the oranges and the limes and lemons, etc. For for Sainsbury's, and that was a, a extraordinary. But, no, I was tempted away to go and join a food distribution business, which was family-owned, called break brothers and breaks were this sort of hidden giant of an organization based down in outside ashford in kent it was started by three brothers from a pub and they were supplying many extraordinary establishments with frozen food fresh food vegetables fresh fish to grocery products and i was one of the very first non-family members to join the main board aged 26 of breaks and and that was the transition uh, period still very much in food very much in sourcing but then started to broaden my experience into more general management sales management logistics and so on and then the western family the canadian side of the western family bought uh, Selfridges in 2003 2004 and they came knocking on my door and saying look, we think you would be interesting to join the board because you have this retail experience with Sainsbury's, but then you've got this restaurant food service experience through the brick supply chain. And during that period of working for bricks, is where I forged a lot of my great friendships with Angela Hartnett, with Marco Pia White, with Gordon, with Mark Hicks, with Chris Galvin, with Michelle Root. They were all relationships that I developed ironically whilst working for breaks because we were such a diverse business doing supplies of truffles and supplies of rare meats and supplies of fresh produce it was such a diverse organization that there probably was barely a restaurant in the land that somehow didn't interact with this extraordinary um uh, private business mm-hmm. that had become this sort of giant, if you like, in the British—a uh, a hidden giant, really, because you know nobody knows who Greats are. You know, I mean, really, I mean, it's not a consumer-facing brand, but a very important business, and and that led nicely to me joining the the board at Selfridges.
1: And when you moved to, to Fortnum and Mason in in two thousand twelve. I think that it, I'm going to try and get the, the statistics right. That you grew profits from is it one million to twelve million in seven years? <laughs> well, does that it, sound about right?
0: Yeah, I mean, on yeah profit, yeah on the toughest measure of all, profit before tax, it, it actually been a loss-making business for the seven years before uh, 2012. I mean, I think I would lost 30, 30 thirty plus million over those years. The very first year I took uh, the reins at Fordham's, we got to 1 million of profit. So, you know, it, it probably the year before it had uh, made a loss or break even or something. So we got it to 1 million and then very uh, quickly over those seven years, yeah, we were up to 12 million of, of profit before tax. And, um, but you know, what an extraordinary team. I mean, it was, you know, I, I to be the CEO, but I mean, it was a, an extraordinary team of people that helped make, that happened. we were also you know when one looks back we were also you know we were lucky in a way we i think the olympic summer was such a strong moment for the country Mm. but such a strong moment for london obviously you know when one thinks back to 2012 summer of 2012 i mean Britain was in an extremely prosperous place it was a, it was doing well it had a great standing in the world the world was looking at it you know when you think about the challenges today in our society in a very short period of time we've got a, a whole host of different types of challenges that Back in 2012, it felt like we could have, you know, the, the country could achieve anything. So I think that taking on the Fortnum and Mason business in 2012 on the back of the Olympic Summer, I think, was a great uh, stepping stone. You know, it was a great uh, springboard to help drive Fortnums in a way and and to to, to make it more relevant. That was the big thing. Mm. Make it more relevant to more people, more often, and that was the simple. And how do you do that? that? I mean, it's,
1: it, it obviously has this incredible reputation, but its reputation is, is pinned on the fact that much of the food is luxury food or, you know, luxury brands. How, how do you go about making that relevant?
0: But there, there you go. There's, there was the very point is that the number one volume item in Fortnum & Mason is tea. And there's nothing more humble than a great cup of tea. And I just was relentless in my communications style and, and, and marketing pursuit to say to everyone who cared to listen that if you care about that one of the most important drinks of the day, if, if that is a cup of tea, then why wouldn't you want to drink the best possible tea? And if you are going to visit a friend and you've got a certain budget and you understand what type of tea they enjoy, then actually spending £12 or £10, £12 on a, on a great tin of tea that's been thoughtfully, you know, the, the, the flavour, you've thought about the flavour, you've mm. thought about what you're, the person you're going to see would like, isn't that great
1: value suddenly? Mm. And it's also a thing of beauty. I mean, that's the other thing about the, the packaging. of absolutely.
0: Yeah. And, you know, way before it became fashionable to talk about uh, upcycling, you know, people held mm. on to beautiful tins they use them for their buttons for their penny pieces for their trinkets you know and so it was it was deeply you know we were talking about that before it became a sort of fashionable thing to talk about not just recycling but upcycling um because that was what fortnum's packaging was all about so really being more relevant to more people more often you know the second most popular drink in the world after water is tea
1: So it's just about reframing how you think
0: about it. And it was about reframing that and realizing actually, you know, most people were able to engage with the brand irrespective of your budget when it came to being able to buy tea. And now, I mean, one of the last projects I was involved in before I left was creating a tea blending station so that you can actually blend your own tea and you can have a bespoke label for your friends, for your name or your friend's name or whatever. And that can be registered on a a database and then you can reorder it online and and make that whole, elevate that whole experience to become a a very personal thing. And as I understand it, that continues to this day and I think is very successful.
1: And while you were there, you launched the the Fortnum & Mason Food and Drink Awards, which have become sort of icon in the the food and drink
0: I, think, right. I, I, I think I'm talking to an award winner, am I not? I,
1: I mean, I, I think I, it's far from me to say, but I do hear <laughs> the judges have excellent taste. <laughs> um, they have mediocre taste in the as I'm shortlisted. Excellent taste in <laughs> the I went. <laughs> um, how did that change the way people interacted with with Fortnum's and with you? It, because it has become sort of bigger than itself almost.
0: Well, it was, uh, the, the idea was very simple. I had been a judge at the Glenfiddich Awards. And you know, for those who are a bit of, of my vintage and older will remember the Glenfiddich fondly, the, the whiskey company who had a vision at some point to want to recognize excellence in the world of broadcasting, writing uh, around the subject of food and drink. But at some point, the sponsors the grant family decided to call time on on the glenfiddics and so i i lindsay Stewart, who we all know very well in the food world was really one of the one of the anchor people at managing the glenfiddich award process so we lindsay and i had lunch on a number of occasions and said wouldn't it be great to resurrect the glenfiddichs and then i arrived in fortnum's august uh, 2012 We have lunch within the first week or two. And I said, this is the moment, Lindsay, we should resurrect the Glenfiddichs. And then between us, we both went, but why on earth would we resurrect the Glenfiddichs? Why wouldn't we call it the Fortnum and Mason Food and Drink Awards? Mm. After all, Fortnum's has been in the food business for well over 300 years. So I think has a right and a respect and a, and a, a status by which its brand name can be associated with excellence. And so we took the model of the Glenfiddich Awards, independent judges each year. I would chair the meeting, but I would not have a vote. So it wasn't about the company deciding who should win. It was about these six strongly minded, independent judges from the food and drink world who each year would go through the process of reviewing the nominations. And now it must be, I think, fast approaching its 12th year. So, mm. you know, isn't that fantastic? But but it was also just a great way of engaging the community. You know, we're all in a community, food and drink, but in this food and drink community. And actually everybody in the community wanted an excuse to come together, wanted an excuse to come and, you know, break bread and, and share great experiences and scrutinize and challenge what people were doing in broadcasting and in writing and to celebrate those people who Mm -hmm. were doing it extremely well and it is a lasting legacy i can see absolutely no reason why it still won't be going in 20 or 30 or 40 years time you know look at some of the great prizes of the world from you know the booker prize to the turner prize to you know music industry prizes you know they many of them have been going for decades and decades and i think the the Fortnum and Mason Food and Drink Awards will continue. I was very proud. Um, as I was leaving, my then chairman Kate Hoppey said, "You know, what next for the awards? You and what do you think we should do when you leave?" And I said, "But well, look, you know, one of the uh, the, the most adorable <laughs> chefs who everybody loves, who everybody adores, has no not a bad word to say, uh, uh, is of course Angela Hartnett." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Why don't you ask Angela?" Who had been a great friend to me, but a great friend to Fortnum's. Why don't you ask Angela to become the new chair of the process? And uh, that's what they've done. And I think that's I think that's been a smart decision. And, and I think Absolutely. Angela helps keep it with Fortnum support, clearly, and the team there. But I think Angela helps give it a another a level of glamour and status. And, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm deeply proud that it continues.
1: Rightly so tell us about your your newest venture because what you've been able to do is combine your your twin loves of food and drink which we've talked about and art which we haven't really touched on yet but that's been a long standing passion of yours is that right
0: very much so i mean as i started the interview talking about my early trips to london to to galleries to museums mm. you know we we grew up just not in a, a high church of, of art, but just in a world where we appreciated that art was a very important part of, of living, and of learning and of sharing. And of course, we all know some of the great artists of the world, you know, would spend some of their, uh, a great deal of their time in restaurants and, and love food. And, and they do, I mean, the artists that I work with today, I, I don't know a single artist who doesn't love the engagement of food and drink, whether it's cooked in a domestic home or whether it's going out to to a restaurant. So there was this sort of natural DNA in me of loving art. And and so when this opportunity arose to to join an organization that is, you know, principally grown out of a contemporary art gallery, now many galleries around the world. But with a deep interest and love of agriculture, of of farming, of food, of wine, of that celebration of of great produce alongside uh, wonderful art. Hence, the company Art Farm was born, and, and a deep privilege and an opportunity to express my passion for food and my passion for art in that combined way. And you know, we're just at the beginning, really, of the story. In a way, I mean, we we have a number of. Very interesting projects in the United Kingdom, in Los Angeles, next year in New York, and I'm sure you know further afield in due course. But it's a it's a real genuine privilege to be able to lead a business and help shape it around the the wonderful interests of art, food, and wine.
1: And how have you gone about setting up the Audley as a space for those combinations?
0: well i mean firstly uh, as i've alluded to is a team uh, teamwork mm-hmm. you know extraordinary teamwork but, but you know we had the vision to say uh, we love the architecture of the building we love the oldly building and uh, that was the n- number one thing that the building had great history and heritage it opened in the 1880s as a as a public house as a restaurant on the first floor and in fact as a hotel in the upper floors and so it had a deep uh, historical reference it's also located on that uh, corner of Mount Street and South Audley Street, where once upon a time was very much the centre of the art world in London. A lot of the historical dealers were in this part of Mayfair. They subsequently moved a bit further east to Piccadilly and to Cork Street, and so. And then they moved. Some of them moved even further east into the East End. So there was a number of, I think, you know, authentic DNA. Routes that were telling us that this building, this location in Mayfair, its proximity to the London Gallery in Savile Row just being a six or seven minute walk away felt like a great decision. Then we get into the detail and our obligation was to retain and restore the pub, uh, the public house on the ground floor anyway, but of course, in the heart of any community that a great pub is often a very important part of, of of a community so that was a a privilege to recognize that actually we should restore the pub and make it more special and more important in the community and then the plan developed to convert the first floor into what is known as the bounce street restaurant and then to take the upper floors which were as i said hotel rooms there were bedrooms and so mm-hmm. that by the time we took on the building, those rooms were actually staff accommodations, so they were not glamorous. But, but, and we came up with this idea of, well, let's call them the curious rooms, interesting rooms that you can have conversations in, that you can have a celebratory breakfast, have a lunch, have a, a special dinner. And then thinking through art and the role of art, and uh, and that's where, of course, I'm surrounded by experts in Hauser and Berth but of, of people who, who have a deep passion and a deep understanding of art. And and that's where the team comes in and you assemble some great food people and you you assemble some great art people and then the magic happens. And that's what we have today.
1: And how have you gone about designing the menu for the the restaurant itself? Has that been something you've had input on?
0: Oh, completely. No, I mean, we didn't have the chef from the earliest days. So, you know, um, Jamie Shears, who's the, the executive chef, arrived a bit closer to the opening so the thinking had to be done well in advance and that's when we two or three of us and a few friends in the trade all sat down and and thought through well um we didn't want to just be another mayfair restaurant selling sashimi and buffalo mozzarella and and avocados by the way you'll never find an avocado in any of our menus because they're they're so hungry and water you know they're, they're killing the planet in a different way. So we're avocado-free, as we, and we're salmon-free as well because we don't believe in farm salmon and the devastation it's having on the riverbed. So we're principled on a, on a couple of key points on on food ingredients, but maybe that's another subject. But no, so we thought through, well, what's the history of London food? When this uh, pub and restaurant opened in 1880, you know what would have been available? And that's when you start thinking, well, actually, shellfish, oysters, lobsters, Eel, you know, from the River Thames. Blamange, the Chelsea, the Chelsea bun. You know the history of the Chelsea mm. bun, the bun bakery in Chelsea, and well, what was it? The spices and the, the you know. So you then start to work through breaking those stories down. Mm. Pie and math, a very ordinary item. So the lobster pie, which is the kind of the most Instagrammable dish you see from this restaurant by our clients by our patrons is the lobster pie and of course it's pie and mash basically but lobsters because they were very cheap they weren't seen as the luxury food that they are today and so that was the genesis of how we took a a simple london pie and mash story took the lobster ingredient that was prevalent back then and and created this fantastic dish that, that tastes delicious but looks great and that's how the menu and how the the genesis of the menu um, has developed, and that's in the Mount Street restaurant. And then you look at the pub, and you go, "Well, we've got cockles on the on, on the menu, and we have fantastic, obvious classics like you know fish and chips." And and then the, we, we're, we're lucky that down in Somerset, where we have a gallery in Bruton, we have a, it's located on our own farm, and and so we have access on our own farm to fantastic beef, fantastic lamb. So we'll use the beef, the lamb from the farm to inform many of the dishes. And of course, carcass utilization is hugely important. So the chefs have got to be constantly creative to make sure that we're not just using prime cuts, but that we're using really the nose to tail and um, creating dishes that utilizes the entire carcass. And that's a a really strong if like ethos and premise of, of what we do. And in the pub, it's accessible. I mean, you can literally just go and order one sausage, two sausages, three sausages. I mean, it's just per sausage. And a pot of mustard, and a pint of beer, and you know you have a very delicious, wholesome, healthy, uh, well, affordable cool. lunch.
1: And when you're eating out, but not not in one of your places, where where do you like to eat in London? Well, um, or not just in London? Doesn't have to be London. Doesn't just have to be London. <laughs> <laughs> the whole yeah, world. Perhaps. Where do you like to eat? You?
0: Where do I like to eat? All. Look, I think we all have. um I always think that we have favourites of where we love to eat because of our memories of certain dishes i guess when you're lucky enough to eat out quite a lot i think that's what drives my you know decision making about you know where i might want to go and and i think that's a, that bears quite a sort of strong influence so you know for sure in london you know i'm a a great fan of the a cafe for sure and there's always you know the panna cotta is something that's adorable or they you know the uh you know just when you're on the spot you start to think oh what is that love but you know that, that, that well their mozzarella is actually pretty fantastic because it's flown in twice a week and it comes with you know or their you know the white peaches in the season with the, the ham mm-hmm. or you know angela we talked about angela but Murano, cafe Murano, you know has the most delicious in the autumn osso Bucco with the risotto Milanese. you know that's just a divine thing to go and have you know and that's a great thing so i suppose really you know, i've just been in cornwall and went to the mariners to paulinesworth's place because i know that they he does this extraordinary um starter that's a chicken sort of a deep fried chicken that's got some delicious sauce and so it's just you know and that's on the menu every summer so whenever i'm in cornwall that's a big trip to go and to have that chicken dish so i think we're a bit like that really you know Mark Hicks with his Sussex Pond pudding, you know, down in mm. his Dorset restaurant in the right season, you know, that would be something that you, I would drive
1: out of my way for, you
0: know, et cetera, et cetera.
1: And to finish, we ask all our guests the same question, which is what would your desert island meal be? It can be as complicated or as simple as you like, but what would be your ultimate meal? Well, if it was in
0: the right season, I would have white truffle risotto. Mm. Quite simple to do could do that on a desert island just a bit of heat (laughs) It's it's a one pan dish isn't it that's a good thing if i had a bit more cooking facilities then i guess lobster and chips with homemade mayonnaise has to be one of those sort of iconic and then i have a fond love of lemon posset Delia Smith's lemon posset recipe. So I I reckon I could probably do white truffle starter, lobster and chips as my main, and lemon posset for my pudding. So I think that's a pretty good combination.
1: And if we were going to somehow provide you with um, with accompanying drink of some description, what would you have?
0: Oh, I think a proper ale. We underestimate the power of a good ale with food. Mm. I think we all jump to fine wines and... Uh, which is of course fantastic but i think a, a great beer a, a light ale or or indeed a a proper a proper dark beer you know it, with with food can often be really rather rewarding and and i think on the desert island you'd need something a bit more substantive than just a glass of wine
1: that's quenching.
0: yes so i think a good <laughs> ale with that delicious last supper and then to finish a cup of fortnum's tea <laughs> Preferably Royal Blend.
1: Ah, oh, ideal. Ian, it has been a complete pleasure to have you on Table Talk. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for joining us on The Spectator's Food and Drink Podcast. For more recipes, food history, stories and drinks, you can head to The Spectator website.